You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. If I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, my name is Larry. I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. And uh, before I dive into today's sermon, I want to say Happy Mother's Day. Uh, if you totally forgot it's Mother's Day, you didn't say anything to your mom or your wife, uh, it, don't worry, the day's not over. You can give them a quick text or something like that right now. You know, I'm married to someone who is uh, a mother, and so that makes me a father, um, and uh, of two kids. And it, every day it seems like I'm more and more mind blown by all the passion and dedication that she gives to her children. And um, and I would say, I would add, during this specific time where we're sort of sheltering in place, everything is heightened. And I see her love more and I see her passion more. And and there's just more physical interaction in general. So especially during this time, it, we're especially thankful for you who are mothers. So for those of you who are mothers, whether biological mothers or spiritual mothers in the faith, we thank you for your love and sacrifice. Um, and uh, if we were meeting in person, what we would probably do is I would ask you all to stand and we applaud. So uh, sorry we can't do that, but just imagine us doing something like that. Uh, however, additionally, I want to recognize that Mother's Day uh, for others may not be the happiest of uh, days for mothers who have lost children, who mothers who, for those who have lost mothers of their own, for mothers with strained child relationships or for those with strained mother relationships of their own or for those yearning to be mothers but can't or for those who have chosen not to be mothers uh, there are a variety of categories in which maybe this day is not the best day for you and if that's you I want to say we stand with you we honor you we support you and we thank you also for being among us too Today's sermon is titled, The Great Descent. The Great Descent will be uh, continuing this book of Philippians in our Sunday service. And uh, today we are in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And this passage is hard to crack. In fact, the scholar, Gordon Fee, he once wrote, uh, quote, By anyone's reckoning, 2, 6 through 11 constitutes the single most significant block of material in Philippians. So much is this so that the secondary literature on this passage, which has mushroomed incrementally over the past 40 years, exceeds that on all the rest of the letter combined. In other words, people have written more about this passage that we're about to talk about today than all of the rest of Philippians combined. So we're doing, uh, we're going to dig through some exciting stuff. Let's dive in. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. If you feel led, feel free to read along with me out loud. Philippians 2, 5 through 11, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humans are obsessed with the idea of becoming like God or of possessing God-like qualities. You see examples throughout history. For example, in ancient times, there were numerous myths or legends 
of mortals becoming immortal, like Heracles or Hercules, depending on your version. You also see this, for example, in uh, a lot of monarchies throughout history, rulers of Rome and Egypt and Persia and China, they often sought to portray themselves as like gods. And later on in history, you have examples of people searching far and wide for things like the elixir of life or the holy grail or the fountain of youth. And they are trying to achieve immortality. And even today, I think one of the reasons why there is sort of this cultural attachment to uh, the superhero narrative, we see this in movies and comics, is because they have, they have these godlike qualities that fascinate us. In fact, some of them, like Thor, for example, they, he literally is a god. And although science has prevented us, uh, modern day science has prevented us from taking a lot of these stories seriously. We're still fascinated by the idea of becoming like God. And even in the realm of science, we might not use this language of becoming like God too, but there is this growing scientific movement of people who are trying to do research in tissue rejuvenation and stem cells and regenerative medicine and molecular repair and things like that in the hopes that we will come up with a cure for aging itself as a hope for future immortality. And you see this also uh, outside of science, of course, in the area of religion. They might not word it the same way, but maybe they're talking about achieving nirvana or talking about becoming one with the universe or being reincarnated into a higher being after death or going to heaven. But much of the appeal of religion is to achieve or obtain this godlike status. And of course, you see this in the Bible. Uh, and oftentimes in the Bible, what's interesting is that trying to become like God is portrayed as a negative thing. For example, you see this in the story of the first sin. The serpent, in tempting Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, uh, they said, uh, um, the serpent said that if they eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, their eyes would be open and they would be like God. Later on in the Bible, in Genesis 11, in the story of the Tower of Babel, people got together and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its, its top in the heavens. And, and during that day and age, uh, Entering the heavens or building something so that its top is in the heavens is equivalent to being like God. And as the king of Babylon later boasted in Isaiah 14, he said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. In other words, I will be like God. And so there are countless examples of people in the Bible even trying to be like God. And the great irony of history and of Christianity is this. Humanity has sought in countless ways to be like God, yet the only one who was like God, namely Jesus, sought to be like us. Humanity has sought in countless ways to be like God, yet the only one who was like God sought to be like us. In the Christian vocabulary, the fancy term for this is the incarnation. The incarnation. And what this means is that Jesus, who was a divine being, chose to become like flesh. That's where that word incarnation comes from. Chose to become a human being. And I think it is more mysterious. This concept of the divine becoming human is more mysterious to me than the crucifixion, more mysterious to me than the resurrection. In fact, uh, J.I. Packer, the author, he writes in his book, Knowing God, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets, 
nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. You know, in this world, we often talk about uh, aiming high to achieve our dreams. We talk about achieving upward social mobility. We talk about standing tall in this world where it seems like the goals are characterized by upward movement, upward direction. The incarnation is about a downward direction. Jesus heads in a downward direction. Just to set some context, you know, the, the passage we read earlier from Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is a continuation of what we read right before in which Paul essentially exhorted the church to have this downward direction. He, read, he writes in Philippians 2, starting from verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that's how Christians are to live with selflessness, humility, others-oriented service. And then in verse 5, which is our passage today, Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're not clear about what this looks like, let me give you an example here, Jesus. And so in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, Paul continues, and he describes how, how Jesus lived with this selflessness and humility and others-oriented service. And here Paul describes Jesus' great descent, the great descent, and how he went from high above down to the earth below. And it's kind of like Jesus is playing this game of spiritual limbo, I don't know if y'all remember what limbo is like. A limbo, that's the, I'm not talking about the state of, never mind. I'm, I'm talking about this long pole or bar uh, where uh, people are holding on one end, on two ends, and you are trying to go under the bar or without touching the bar. And the goal is to have the bar as low as possible without hitting the bar. And so Jesus is playing this game of how low can you go with this incarnation. And there are multiple steps, as you will, along this descent, which we will be exploring one by one. The first step in this great descent, is that Jesus gave up his glory. He gave up his glory. And this is found in verses 6 through 7. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So let's pause here real quick. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God? What, was, what does it mean that he was in the form of God? What does that phrase form of God mean? You know, there's there's actually whole books written about this exact phrase because this verse by itself is a little bit confusing. If you just, you know, if you just read this verse by itself, you might come away with maybe Jesus isn't actually God. He's just similar to God. And some people have um, thought that because of verses like this. But however, we have other verses in the Bible that do clearly state that Jesus is divine, that he is God. And I'll give you one example. This is Hebrews 1, starting from verse 1, very beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus, okay? So he used to speak through prophets. Now he speaks through Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this God created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprints of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So here Jesus is described as the radiance of the glory of God. And that's pretty spectacular language, but that's still kind of ambiguous. That might sound like he is very similar to God. He reflects God, but maybe he's not God. But then we see he is the exact imprint of his nature. And so I think that makes it pretty clear that Jesus is exactly like God. He's a 
a copycat. He's exactly like God. And, uh, and just to add a cherry on top, the author adds, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Who else can uphold the universe by the word of his power except for God? Right? So it seems pretty clear in Hebrews that Jesus, he, when, it's saying, when, when the apostle uses language like he is in the form of God, or he is in the radiance, he is the radiance of the glory of God. It doesn't mean that he is not God, but that he, 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 he uh, possesses the essence or the nature of God. And, but although, catch this, although he has God's essence and God's nature, Paul writes that he does not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and he emptied himself. And so there are two images here that Paul talks about in verses six and seven in uh, Philippians two. The first of somebody, the first is of somebody holding on to something that belongs to him, but then he opens up his hand and he lets it go. He doesn't want to grasp onto it. He opens it up and lets it go. Jesus had this equality with God, but he released the grasp. He opened up his hand and he gave it up. And the second image is of something being emptied. Imagine a full jar or a full cup being poured out, poured out until it is empty. And so those are the two images that Paul describes. You know, King James, this emptied himself. The King James version uh, says he made himself of no reputation. That's how he words it. Uh, the, the author words it. He made himself of no reputation. And I think the, co- the concept is similar to where Paul writes elsewhere that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He had all of this wealth, all of this glory, all of this honor, and he chose to release it, chose to pour it out. So it's not that Jesus stopped being God. This is not talking about his identity or his nature or his essence. This is talking about his reputation and his status and his glory. He temporarily chose to give up this glory of being God. In this world in which we are all prone to grasping on to any glory we can receive for ourselves, we have Jesus who did the exact opposite, which was he had all the glory he could ever have, anybody could possibly have, and he chose to release his grasp. He chose to pour it out, to empty it himself. He chose to give it up. Um, You know, sometimes this sort of thing happens to us, but involuntarily, and I'll give you an example uh, usually at a much smaller scale. You know, if you've been following our church uh, on social media, maybe you've heard that we've been giving out these face masks. We received uh, a large donation of face masks from uh, a church in China. And a few other members of our church had some face masks and donated to our church. And so we've been handing these out and we've just been putting it online. We get requests and I go meet these people. And so we have a few volunteers meeting these people and handing these out. And so far we've handed out masks to uh, 80 different families, about 80 different families, and a few senior buildings, churches, and nonprofits, and it's pretty exciting. And by the way, if you are in need of face masks, please let us know. We can hook you up. We can arrange a drop-off time. But anyways, anyways, uh, this past week, a few days ago, I was uh, doing this face mask stuff. Uh, I, 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 a lady had left a voicemail, and so I called her back, and I said, hey, I'm Larry. I'm a pastor at the Village Church, and we heard you're in need of face masks. And she's like, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and so we arranged a drop-off time. She's like, thank you, Pastor Larry. And, and so that was that. And then a few hours later, uh, I told her I was going to be there in a few hours. So a few hours later, I went over to uh, where she was and um, I dropped off these masks. And I'm like, hey, I'm Larry from the Village Church here to drop off the masks. And she's like, oh, wonderful. Please tell your pastor. I said, thank you. And in my, in my mind at that moment, 
I was like, oh, I, I did a few things. First, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll tell him I'll say thank you. And then I was like, wait, I'm the pastor. I was talking to you on the phone. But I felt weird saying it out loud. And so I just sort of like, um, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll tell him thank you. Okay. So I just walked off to the car. But as I was driving home, I felt off. I felt um, awkward and I felt robbed of glory. And I don't know if you've um, experienced this. I, I experienced this quite a lot, actually. I don't know if it's because I'm Asian. I don't know if it's because I'm, I look young. I don't know if it's because I don't dress well, whatever it is. But there have been several circumstances in which I meet people and I am un, I'm of the understanding that they should know that I'm a pastor, but for some reason they automatically assume I'm not. And uh, during those moments, I feel bothered because people don't recognize who I am. And I don't know if you relate to that where um, maybe you're just uh, hanging out on the street corner and people just assume you're out on the street corner, so you're up to no good. Or maybe I've heard this before. Maybe you're a female doctor and you are working at a hospital and people just see you and they see that you are a woman. So they assume that you're not a doctor, but you're a nurse right? And maybe there's countless examples of this, uh, but what is going on, uh, I think what the source of my uncomfortable, I'm not talking for anybody else, but just for me, I think the source of my uncomfortable tension that I feel in that moment is that I am involuntarily giving up glory. I'm involuntarily being unrecognized. I'm involuntarily giving up my status or my reputation, or to put it in Paul's words, I had I am in the form of a pastor, but I, uh, I am in that moment not able to grasp on to this equality with pastor. It is something that I cannot grasp. Uh, however, there's a big difference between uh, my experience and Jesus' experience in that my experience is involuntarily, involuntary, but Jesus' experience is voluntary. In my experience, when people don't recognize I'm a pastor and I feel off about it, it is because usually somebody is ignorantly causing me to give up glory. We don't choose to give up our glory, but in Jesus' scenario, no one caused him to give up glory. In fact, he willingly, voluntarily surrendered his glory himself. He chose to experience this inner tension that I experienced. So here I was, here's the contrast. Here I was, being bothered that I wasn't being recognized for who I actually was. But here's Jesus, God himself, fully aware of who he was, but choosing to not be recognized for who he was. In fact, this is mind-blowing. There were several times in Jesus' earthly ministry where people would go up to him and they would realize who he was and Cassius, he would tell them not to tell anybody, not to spread the word, not to be recognized for who he was. And, and, and just think about this. His whole life, for 33 years, until the very end, for 33 years, he was constantly surrounded by people who completely did not recognize who he was, completely underestimated who he was. And they were constantly saying stuff like, oh, isn't this this guy from Nazareth? He's just a son of a carpenter. There's nothing good that comes from Nazareth. Oh, he's dying on a cross. You know, he can save other people, but he can't save himself. They're constantly saying these things of him that were not true. They were underestimating him, not recognizing who he was. And he just, he was okay with it. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. He didn't feel the need to correct people. He didn't feel the need to just... He just kept trudging along. He just took it. He kept going about his business. 
because he was in this business of descending from heaven to earth. He was in this process of giving up his glory, emptying himself. And as we all see, he's in the process of becoming a human being just like the rest of us. So step one of the great descent is he gave up his glory. Step two, found in verse seven, he became human. He became human. Verse seven, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Some translations say slave, being born in the likeness of men. You know, this is interesting because God could have surrendered his glory. He could have ungrasped, let go of his glory in a variety of ways. He could have been, maybe he didn't have to be just uh, uh, the son of God reigning in heaven. He could have been God's number two, or he could could have been an archangel. But instead he chose to take the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And Paul, I think he intentionally uses the same word form here. He's, uh, earlier, he said that Jesus, Jesus is in the form of God. And now he says that Jesus is the form of a servant. You know, in Paul's day, uh, human beings were considered servants of the gods. Their whole lives were dedicated to pleasing the gods and honoring the gods and worshiping the gods. And here, God is choosing to be like a regular human being, a regular servant of the gods. You know, lately, um, our daughter has been throwing tantrums and it's a normal thing for two-year-olds. And sometimes uh, I get frustrated when she gets frustrated and I've, I've been having to learn. And this is something my wife tells me a lot of times. When she's in those states of mind, when she's throwing tantrums, I need to get down to her level. I need to get down to her level. I need to put myself in her shoes to think like her, to feel like her, to talk like her, so that she knows that I understand where she's coming from. And that And only then, when we have that common bond, then I can lift her out a bit. And I think that's what Jesus did with us. He became just like us. He got down on our level. You know that saying, um, you can't understand another person's experience until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Well, Jesus walked for 33 years in our shoes. He descended down to our human level. He put himself in our shoes so that he could think like us, feel like us, talk like us. And as the author of Hebrew writes, Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. He was just like us in every way or form. Therefore, no matter what you go through in life, no matter how ugly things get, no matter how much pain you're bearing, no matter how alone or depressed or frustrated you may be, you can know that Jesus knows what you're going through because he experienced it too. And so he understands. And only because he is at our level can we trust him enough for him to lift us out of it. So that's step two of the great descent. He became a human being just like us. And here's step three found in verse eight. He was obedient to death. Verse eight, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So not only did Jesus relinquish his glory, let go of the grasp of glory, not only did he become a human being, but he also became obedient to the point of death. Most human beings don't choose to die. Most human beings resist death in every way we can, but not Jesus. He didn't resist death. He chose to die. In fact, he came to die. This contrast is seen in uh, Mark 10, 37 to 45. This is a story between two of Jesus' disciples and Jesus. And so two of his disciples, James and John, they come to him and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left 
in your glory. And so they're imagining Jesus in heaven in all of his glory, and they want upward mobility, right? They want the ascent, the great ascent. They want to be seated right next to him on his right and his left. In verse, eight, verse uh, 38, catch what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, because they also want to be lifted up, right? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. In other words, this is how the world do, does things. They are attracted and addicted to power. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So do you see what Jesus is doing in this conversation? He is flipping the script. James and John, they come to him and they want glory. And Jesus is saying, all the world wants glory. All the world wants upward mobility, but it shall not be that way among you. You shall be like me. And what is my way of doing things? I am a slave of all. I am as a son of man. My mission is to give my life as a ransom to many. Eventually, later in the book of Mark, there are two people placed at Jesus' left and right. It was at the scene of his crucifixion. And that was probably the last thing James and John had in their minds when they were asking to be placed on his left and right. But you see, James and John, they were fixated on the throne, but Jesus was fixated on the cross. And the huge irony of the cross was, yes, Jesus was lifted up for all to see, but it wasn't on a glorious throne. It was on a cross. And yes, Jesus had a crown on his head, but it wasn't a beautiful golden crown. It was a crown of thorns. And yes, there was a sign proclaiming to all that Jesus was the great king of the Jews, but it wasn't a celebratory sign. It was a sign to mock him. You see, Jesus came to earth not to drink the Holy Grail that we talked about before, but to drink the cup of God's wrath. He did not come to bathe in the fountain of youth, but he came to be baptized in death. For in the kingdom of God, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And therefore Jesus, the first among us, the first of the kingdom, the firstborn of the kingdom, the greatest among us has become the slave of all to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' path at that moment was not the path of ascent. It was the path of descent, even to the point of death. And as Paul emphasizes, even death on a cross. As many of you know, crucifixion was one of the most brutal forms of death ever invented. And in Jesus' day, it was reserved only for the worst criminals. And that was the path that Jesus chose. So this is the path of Jesus' great descent. He surrendered his glory. He became like a human being. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. However, spoiler alert, if you're not aware, he did not stay dead. Verse 6 through 8, which we just read, describes Jesus' great descent. And verses 9 through 11 now describe Jesus' great ascent. So he goes down and he goes back up. Verse 9, therefore God has exalted, has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And just notice how lavish this language is. You have this total supremacy overall. It's saying that he was highly exalted. It says that he has a name that is above every name. It says that every knee should bow. It is, he says that, uh, Everybody in heaven and on earth and under the earth, in other words, everybody, totality, is going to be worshiping him. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Jesus' descent was not permanent. It was temporary. It was part of the path to his exaltation and his glory. In fact, it seems like, if we're reading this right, the suffering is a direct cause of the glory. That's why verse 9 starts with, therefore, it says, therefore, God highly exalted has highly exalted him. Jesus humbled himself, humbled himself to suffering and death. He did all this stuff. And then therefore God highly exalted him. As we mentioned last week, the path of suffering is often the path to glory. And that of course is true of the greatest of all Jesus. If you're new to this whole Jesus thing, maybe your question is, why did Jesus go through that? Why did Jesus go through this path of suffering to glory? He already was in heaven in the first place. He was already with God. He had everything he wanted. He had all the glory. Why did he surrender all that experience of our brokenness and suffering and then just go back to square one? What was the point of him going through all that pain and suffering? Why was he obedient to the point of death? Well, if if you're asking that question, I want to say great question. That's one of the reasons why we're here today. Romans 5.19 For us by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By one man's disobedience, who was this? This was Adam. What did Adam do? Adam grasped at the opportunity to be like God. And as a result, through that disobedience, we were made sinners. By one man's obedience. Who is this? This is Jesus. Jesus chose not to grasp equality with God. And through Jesus's obedience, we were made righteous. You see, it was through Jesus's great descent to death that we ascend to life. I'll say that again. It was through Jesus's great descent to death that we ascend to life. The reason why Jesus descended down to earth was so that when he ascended back to heaven, he could bring us all with him. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's from his book, Miracles. It's a, it's a little long, but bear with me. In the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being in time and space, down into humanity, down further still, if embryologists are right to recapitulate in the womb, ancient and pre-human phases of life. In other words, he became part, he became a, a pre-born human being down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created, but he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly strains his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, 
Then, up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he went down to recover. We are the dripping precious thing that Jesus went down to recover. The reason why Jesus went to such great depths, even to the point of death on the cross, was to rescue us, to save us, and to bring us home. That was the reason for it all. And Paul is saying in Philippians, why, he, why is he talking about what Jesus did? Verse 5, he says, Have that mind among yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, this mind of humility, this mind of dying to your own desires, this mind of descending into the uncomfortable, descending into the dirty, descending into the tumultuous, descending into the painful, descending into the crazy, descending into the, into the broken. That's what Jesus did for us. And Paul is saying, have that mind among yourselves and do that for one another. Why? So that we would bring others home too. Um... We're going to invite the music team back up and I'm going to pray as we close. Please join with me as we pray. Father, we thank you so much for the great descent of Jesus that even though we were lost without you, even though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, even though we had no reason to find you, to even look for you, you pursued us. You were like the good shepherd who left the 99 sheep to find the one lost sheep. And you did that for us. And you did so at great, great cost to yourself. It was this movement of great humiliation, of great suffering, of great pain. This great descent from which you came from heaven down to earth, even to the point of death. We thank you so much that you did that on our behalf. You do that to rescue us and to bring us back to you. And God, may we have that mind as well. May we not be so boastful, so arrogant, so glory seeking that we lose sight of the gospel and the impact that it has on our lives. May we be like Jesus, choosing not to grasp at opportunities for self-glory, but may we seek opportunities to give you glory to be obedient to you no matter the cost. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.